Hi, I'm Jessie Hayes, and you're listening to The Progression Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Progression Podcast. Uh, I'm Johnny, Progression CEO uh, and longtime podcast recorder. Today, I'm chatting to Jessie Hayes, who is the VP of People and Talent at Whereby, a London-based video chat platform. So we go into a little bit about her journey to this point through various roles at big and small companies. She has a fascinating way of looking at the role of the people team as managing a product and talking about a subscription and retention and acquisition around subscriptions of people, uh, which is just a really fascinating way of thinking about the problem. And then we go into progression frameworks. She has some opinions around progression frameworks that are definitely somewhat different to mine, uh, but she brings up some incredibly valid points uh, and has definitely built a fair few in her time. So it's worth worth listening to and, and absorbing. So without further ado, enjoy. Hi, Jesse. Great to have you on the podcast. Good to be here. We've known each other for a little while. And in fact, we hung out in a someone's living room and both did a talk. Yes. Like, years ago three about three years ago and i've kind of followed you ever since and now we've been doing clubhouse sessions together so we've chatted a few times but it's really great to have you on the podcast mm. to dig into people stuff because you are the vp of people and talent yeah. at yeah, whereby that's me and we don't have many people people or haven't had many people people on the podcast yet so it's really nice to have a new viewpoint and i know that you'll have many viewpoints <laughs> but yeah, we're here to talk about whereby and a remote team of 100 plus. Yeah, about 100 and, oh gosh, about 110. I think we'll be about 160 by end of summer. Okay, so seriously, you've you've obviously been a COVID beneficiary. Yes. Whereby is a Zoom competitor. I don't know if that's a fair analogy. Yeah, but... I mean, it's funny. We've actually got a couple of products. We've got a kind of B2C video communication platform very similar actually the biggest competitor there is something more like a whatsapp or a facetime really and then we have the kind of b2b business video communication platform where yes zoom absolutely is the place that we're competing the most but then we have a third platform which is actually an embedded product that is made for developers who want to build a, an app like riverside fm which is where we're chatting right now where there's some kind of video connection rather than build a video platform into your product you can just embed whereby technology and then kind of save yourself the hassle and then the competitors there are very different it's platforms like jitsi that kind of stuff so lots of people know right. about the the zoom one because that's what they interact with most but we've actually got quite a few things going on interesting you've got a consumer entry point into a much bigger product as as is always the way with you know any company the, the iceberg you can only see the very top of it and there's, there's all sorts of things going on yeah. underneath anyway 160 people that's an even bigger number but fully remote yeah and using a lot of whereby i assume <laughs> but i would love to dig into how do you, how as a people leader you make sure that 100 and 10 or 160 people are happy and comfortable and getting everything they need mm -hmm. and you know when that when the world opens up again how you anticipate that changing and, and all of that kind of stuff so we can dig into that but also because this is the progression podcast and we have to talk about career progression on some level we should talk about how you think about helping people to grow yeah and what your role is 
within that and then what you devolve to managers and you know what is an individual's responsibility as well mm. so i'll be excited to get into that but first of all it'd be great to hear i suppose a potted history of jesse like what how did you get here today and and what is what's the story of you and and what you're up to yeah well where i am today i'm actually in a cabin on a like a weekend away in the middle of the outskirts of amsterdam so i'm actually feeling extremely relaxed and excited to <laughs> to chill out and have a nice conversation whereas usually i'm in my home office it's a very different vibe um so if you're listening to me and you usually listen to me on a podcast you can probably hopefully tell the dulcet sounds of my voice have softened because of my nice weekend away how did i get here so I have always worked in people operations, basically, uh, or HR or human capital management, depending on what you want to call it. I got my grad role straight out of university. I actually studied journalism and communications and uh, like so many grads didn't really know what jobs were or what what existed out in the world, right? So I got offered two different internships, one at Cambridge University Press and one at BHP Billiton doing HR. And I actually ended up going for that one for kind of stupid reasons, but really loved it. I really loved working in people ops. I really loved working in the rotation, doing all different things. You know, I spent some time in payroll and industrial relations and accommodation, which is a whole area of kind of mining and resourcing HR as well. And then I moved to the UK and I started working for what I presumed was a very similar company to BHP Billiton and I think on the tin it kind of is but I started working for Goldman Sachs which if you know me feels extremely (laughs) off-brand but it's a really interesting place I I definitely have a lot of respect for Goldman and the work that they do but what that kind of those two experiences did to me when I was younger was I realized that I really, what I loved about BHP wasn't the kind of big company, which is what I thought it was, right? I thought when I was, you know, when I was 20, 21, I was like, oh, I just like working in these massive big companies with lots of resources and lots of people and lots of things going on. But actually when I got to Goldman, I realized like, oh wait, no, that's not what I liked because that's what Goldman is. And I don't like that about Goldman. What I did like was at BHP, there's like, there was so much diversity. You had like industrial biochemists and truck drivers and scientists and accountants and lawyers and all these people and they all had all their own different problems and different backgrounds and the job just was so much more interesting and then at Goldman you know you're just dealing with kind of different size and shaped bankers like there's not a lot of diversity in that respect right (laughs) even if I think Goldman is doing quite a good job of diversifying the actual backgrounds of people working there now but you know it you're definitely still dealing with a lot of the same people, same challenges, same kind of team structures. It's just not that. It wasn't my vibe. Mm. But I did really love the like huge focus on, I guess like high quality talent is the best way to describe it without sounding like extremely psychopathic. But like, you know, that you're, you're re- recruiting people with like PhDs that have been you know, to, to the best universities in the world that speak five languages, that really care about the backgrounds and the jobs that they're doing. And they're just so smart. And, you know, a lot of energy and time and money is going into like, how can we make these people that we work with do a really good job and enjoy their work and everything else? And I decided I wanted to leave Goldman and I was speaking to a friend and they were like, well, if you really love the kind of diversity of people at a BHP and you love the kind of high quality and like the bar at Goldman, like tech seems like a really good place for you to go head in that direction. And I did that and I have worked in tech ever since. I worked at a company called Box when we went through IPO, which was like one of the best experiences of my life. I loved working there. Mm. And then I just started getting, I got interested in like getting into startups that were smaller and smaller and smaller, like as small as I could go until uh, the last couple of years I've been working consulting on like seed level and like even like a couple of people startups. And now I'm back at Whereby. So that's an extremely long 
history, but maybe hopefully it's interesting. No, it's great. I mean, I, you've experienced both ends of the scale. I mean, Goldman's and tens of thousands of employees and then seen a couple of people. I personally have the biggest company I've worked at is about 2000. So I've never kind of experienced the the much bigger scale and divisions and all this kind of stuff going on. Yeah. What appealed to you about very small going from very large? I think it was the... So I, I went to Box and when I joined Box, it was about maybe like 1,500 or 1,000 people. It was still pretty early days when I joined. So it was like the beginning of 2014, January, I think. Is that right? It was around that time. So it was like 2013, 2014, I joined and it was, a, it was quite a small team in the UK or in Europe. So we'd only, so Box globally was about 1,000 people at that time. And Box Europe, the whole company was like 100 people. Mm. So although I still had that kind of, I was still part of this bigger company and Box got much bigger at the time I was there. I think when I left, it was about 5,000 people. But the European side of things itself, were like we were opening up new satellite offices and we still had, we really did have this very startup-y approach because we didn't have the same resources as the Palo Alto offices did have. Mm. So having that experience was really interesting. It was almost like kind of a risk-free version of getting into a startup, right? Because like you've got a hundred yeah. people and you can do all this stuff, but you've got these huge budgets and like the support system of people back in the US that were able to like help us through decisions. And it was just such a fun experience that when we started growing bigger and bigger, when we IPO'd, when we got past the like 4,000 mark, I was like, well, I actually really miss the days when we were back in a team of really like everything was really small and my job was kind of doing everything and I got to know all this yeah. different stuff and these challenges weren't being kind of given to the legal team and said we could kind of have a stab at it with a lawyer and that kind of stuff and when I left box I went and did a little bit of consulting but I was still probably not quite senior enough to be really getting my teeth stuck into the heavy stuff but I started doing a bit of stuff around like organizational design and those kinds of things and seeing kind of smaller companies. And I ended up settling in a company called Wonderbly for a couple of years. Mm. And that was a really, really fun company because when I joined, they were like 30 people. We went all the way up to 200 almost. And then we went all the way back down to 40. <laughs> so I kind of had this like crazy wild ride there as well. But I think it was just, you know, seeing the different, I really got to start learning like the different kind of journeys and things that happen in companies at these different sizes that you, mm. you see the same patterns emerge over and over again, but then you also see new things happen that really take you by surprise that sometimes really awesome. And sometimes obviously not awesome, like restructuring a whole team because someone made a silly decision three years ago, that mm. kind of stuff happens. But then also interesting happen stuff happens with like, someone says like, Oh, we made a decision to make our entire customer service team remote. It's like, and it's working awesomely and everyone loves it. It's like, wow, that's a really cool thing. I, you know, I just find that really fun to see the different ways decisions affect teams. Absolutely. And and the Wonderbly example is seeing a kind of a life cycle of a team. I would imagine that your job thinking about a team that's growing from 30 to 200 and a team that's kind of doing the opposite. They're very different experiences and culturally very different. And what are some of the gnarliest bits of, of that? If you can talk about it. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think one of the things I love so much about Asi, who's the CEO of Wonderbly, is like he's actually really open about a lot of this stuff anyway. And the decision to start scaling Wonderbly down wasn't like a, we didn't go from 200 back to 40 in like one day or anything like that. It was over the course of a year, these decisions, like we gradually started scaling back. But I think it's actually quite a good, I think it's quite a good example of like, when I joined, they just got a lot of funding. They just had Series A. I think we just landed Series A like the month I joined. And 
I think there was a lot of people saying what you need to do when you get that much money is you just grow the team really big and you just invest a bunch of money in all these different things and just go for it. And I think this is a good example of like maybe not every, just because another company is doing that with that money doesn't mean that it's something that you should do. Mm-hmm. I think one we made some really, really good decisions at that time and they hired some really amazing people. And they also, there was also a lot of decisions that I think we just, you know, investing too much money in one product. We launched one book that a mm-hmm. huge amount of money went into the investment of, but actually what we should have been doing is diversifying. Mm-hmm. So like, yes, we were doing the advice of spending all the money, but we weren't spending the money we shouldn't have spent it on one product. We should have spent it on 15 products. But right. because we're a physical book company, it's a kind of different type of advice. If you're working in a B2B SaaS platform, people are going to say like, don't diversify your product. Just build the product really, really well. Don't start splitting off and doing five different things. So I think this is like, a, it's a really good example of like taking advice, but trying to figure out like what's different about us and whether or not you should take that advice, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So that ended up, you know, we, we kind of learned as we went through the process. And thankfully, you know, Wonderbly is doing awesome now, doing really, really well. But that's because we had this kind of gnarly period of like, when I joined, one of the other things that was funny is there was someone somewhere had read an article that said like squads are the best thing to set up. So we started setting up squads, but it wasn't really done right. So that we had like, we had, I think we had three creative directors that was like one poor backend engineer working across four different squads. Like it was just really... It just wasn't working well. So I had to kind of come in and like reshuffle the org to make it work properly. Mm. And that those kinds of things are really gnarly because it actually affects people, right? It's okay mm. if you invest a bunch of money in one product and then the product fails because you know, people get their hearts broken for a couple of weeks and they move on. Mm. But if you have a job that you really love and then all of a sudden you get told that your job isn't there anymore, like that sucks. Yeah. And it's still the worst part of my job yeah. by a long way. Yeah. Do you think that it stops, have you seen it stop people making the right decision for the business for that reason? And I think one of the things I've learned over the years is like, there's not ever really a right decision for companies, right? I think there's this, sometimes there's an expectation that a golden hand is going to come down from the sky and be like, this is the path you should pick. Mm-hmm. And like that just never, it's never going to happen. And sometimes making a good decision is good enough Mm. or making a not bad decision maybe even is good enough this episode of the progression podcast is brought to you by progression user research here at progression we're on a mission to build software that helps people to grow and that they love to use to do that we need to talk with team members with managers with hr folks to really understand what they want to do and how they want to do it if you'd like to help us out you can go to progressionapp.com research and in return for your time, you'll receive a first edition progression t-shirt. Back to the show. And I think there's this like expectation on companies more and more now that, you know, you can't ever let anybody down. And I just don't think that's a reasonable expectation because like ultimately, you know, I think for a long time, the power structures that existed in companies were like, yes, it was companies like Goldman and BHP where it's, you know, you actually should expect higher standards, I think, to some degree of those kinds of companies. They have a lot more resources, they have a lot more power, Mm. and they definitely should be making, you know, better decisions more often Mm. than uh, a local startup with five people that are just trying to do the best they can, right? But I think sometimes the expectations are still held to these smaller companies of like 50 or 60 people to like make the optimum decision but very often they don't have the resources they may not have the experience and you don't have the full picture until you have retrospective perspective right yeah and there's this like 
this pressure to like not make a decision that lets people down mm. but I just don't think that that's you know I think people need to be a little bit more forgiving of the fact that startups are going to make terrible decisions sometimes and sometimes that's the risk that you take joining them yeah that really resonates with me as a founder we're now growing a team and you end up kind of showing people the work that precedes them and I find myself apologizing for it you know being like no but I know that this is bad and we should do it better but here it is and it's like well at the time I didn't really have any context or much time or anyone else so this was a fine decision at the time but it's really easy to like compare yourself as a team of whatever it is as a team of 10 to compare yourself to a team of 100 as a team of 100 to compare Mm. yourself to a team of a thousand etc and be like well why didn't we do I mean look what they just rolled out and you know look what we can do it's yeah I think especially when there's kind of this leveled playing field of I don't know Twitter and and you know your marketing site it's hard to tell how big teams are and and it's really easy to compare your output to things that actually you'll get there like in a year's time or in two years time you'll be able to do stuff like that but you can't do it yet and that's fine yeah, I mean, we had a situation at Whereby recently where we made a kind of like a, a kind of crisis decision, right? Like there was a there was some something came from the data, something very quickly needed to be done about it, and we made this decision to like kind of organize a black ops type squad and like fix this problem really quickly. And you know, some of the decisions that were made pissed people off. Mm-hmm. Like they really annoyed people. They didn't feel like they were the right decisions. They didn't feel like they were well communicated. And people were really hurt by part of it. And I I definitely understand why people would feel hurt. And there's like, you know, I have a lot of empathy for my peers in that respect. But at the same time, sometimes I feel like there's this like expectation, like, well, you should do better. You should just communicate these things better. And it's like, well, just as you were completely opaque to the situation that was going on around you, some of us that were making the decisions were also opaque to the fact that you couldn't see what was happening. Mm. So there's an element here of like, you have to, give people like presume best intent and give the benefit of the doubt to your peers. Because even if you are the CEO of the company, you might still be the CEO of a 50 person company that this is the first time you've been the CEO during a crisis, that this is the first time that you've ever had to make a decision between two different teams that you both think are really valuable. And one of them has to be let down. Like there's lots of things here that compound issues. And I think that's one of the things that has been really beneficial to my career as I've moved through startups. It's like I've do really try very hard to kind of presume best intent and to give that kind of trust back to everyone of like, I think everyone's just doing the best they can mm. and like, let's meet on that middle ground. Yeah. It's so easy to yeah. forget that when you're in the heat of battle and everyone comes in with what they believe is the right answer. It's so easy to forget that everyone is trying to achieve the same thing ultimately. Well, you've got to assume that. I mean, assuming anything else is really destructive. So. Exactly what you assume that we purposefully didn't want to tell you this thing because we what don't like you right. like I, yeah that's tough that's tough that's tough to swallow for me like do I give that vibe off like yeah it's it's yeah. it's interesting mm. maybe this is a good segue into the role of a kind of a people ops department in a company and yeah as a regular employee you know I'm an engineer in a team and I have my manager and maybe they have their manager and then there's the CTO and then there's the people team and I'm thinking about what I'm doing next and which team I'm on and what per- maybe what perks I'm getting and how I'm being treated and mm-hmm. how the company's talking to me and my role. Like how much is that within your role? How much do you see that as something that lies with, 
are you like an do you see yourself as like an internal PR team at all or is like maybe that's a very cynical thing to say but like how yeah how do you see your role within the I suppose health of an individual within the organization so the way that I see my team I actually I see my team like a product team Mm. which is like kind of I think something I talk about quite a lot, but it's a new concept for some people that work in people operations or even that interact with people operations teams. So like I talk quite a lot about, I believe the employee experience is like a subscription product. Every company is selling two things or making two things. They're making one hand the product that they're actually making and on their other hand, they're making this company that people want to come and subscribe to and work for. And it's my job to product manage that subscription product. So every single month when you sign that contract, you buy the subscription product and every single month you make a decision whether or not you want to continue subscribing. Something happens at some point that makes you feel like either this company slash product doesn't, it's not the right fit for me anymore, I've outgrown it, or this company slash product sucks now mm-hmm. and I don't want to subscribe to it anymore because it's not the right, you know, I don't want to spend my money there. Mm-hmm. Or my time, It's time, yeah. right? You're, you're yeah. investing time, not money. So the way that I think about it is like, actually my job really is to product manage that subscription product. Mm-hmm. And I kind of build my team in a way that does that through two different parts of their job. The first part is like actually building that product. So that's launching the different tools and features and things that you expect as an employee through this experience. So it's things like as simple as a nice experience booking holiday. You want that to be, you don't want to have to log into some bullshit system and Mm. log it in manually and have someone send an email and then read the email and then you get your holiday approved. Like, that, that's a horrible experience that you wouldn't expect at a subscription product. So like, why shouldn't it be something that you can just do on Slack that you can mm-hmm. like slap a Slack command, book in your holiday, that's all done, bish, bash, bosh, let's move on. So it's something as simple as that to as complicated as a progression framework. Mm-hmm. You obviously want a progression framework that's legible, that's readable, that you understand, just like you'd expect if you're a subscription, uh, subscription product, like what's next for this? If I want to c- continue to grow my subscription, what does that look like? Yeah. How do I spend the money? How do I make this happen? And then the other part of the job is what we call in our team human ops, which is basically user research, which is like talking to people, the stuff that only a human can do. Mm -hmm. So it's like coaching someone through a difficult situation, hearing feedback, being there to work with someone through something that uh, maybe is uncomfortable for them or to, you know, attend a meeting with them, to kind of ask questions, to interrogate, to live the values, all those kinds of things. So my team is expected to do both of those two things and that's their job essentially. Mm. And then I'm ultimately accountable for people either not subscribing to our subscription product anymore that we want to, or people that don't sign up at all, what's right. happened there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's the other bit. Yeah, you've got acquisition and churn, right? Or acquisition and retention. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. So within, uh, I'm gonna ask some silly questions. because. And I guess upsells as well is the next bit, right? Because upsells is obviously like promotions. Yes. Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> Although that, to continue the analogy, that's the product choosing to starts getting weird but up until that point i think it makes a lot of sense it really like as someone that, with a product hat on it's like oh that make, makes complete sense and actually completely reframes how you think about it it's really interesting so then mm. within that presumably within your team you have people that are thinking about one or the other side of that so everyone on my team does both of those things at once okay. their job is 50% of their time, or actually we say it's like 60, 40, any one week. So one week you may be doing slightly more product kind of project work. So one week you might be doing slightly more human opsy work. But I think the, the main thing with my team is I actually don't hire people necessarily from a people background. So I've got an engineer whose name is Jesse, same as me. <laughs> and she is the technology and engineering people partner. So 
She is embedded with their team. She kind of speaks the same language as them. She's you know an engineer herself, so she knows how to understand their problems. Ashley, who comes from marketing, Helen, who used to be a head of customer support, who works with our customer support and our sales team. And then Jorgen does operations and legal, and he comes from a HR background. So he's like the only one other than me that actually has done people operations in, in, in their past. Um, and I think it works really well because that human ops thing, like that's actually the bit that HR people, and I, I think this is like the controversial opinion, HR people kind of are terrible at that mm-hmm. so that they're, they're never really good at building the products because I've seen so often, you know, HR teams build stuff that is fundamentally against the values of the company. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean this like they're building stuff that's like, you know, and maybe actually sometimes they are building stuff that's like, you know, unethical. But <laughs> more often it's things like, you know, you're saying you're a company that really values progression mm-hmm. and learning and progress and, you know, pace and execution. And yet, to get a promotion, you need to work for the company for a full year. You're not allowed to have a conversation unless the manager says you're allowed to have a conversation. You need to fill out some rubbish form that takes you two hours that you don't even know what happens with it afterwards. Then behind closed doors, some people have a conversation and then you get told, yes, you're allowed a promotion. Like, how does that connect with any of the values you've just mentioned? Mm. It's just like some dumb process that you're going through. It's bureaucratic. But I think that they're, they're built that way and badly is because HR people, like I don't fully understand how the teams work. I'd, I'd love to know more and I do try to learn more, but it's not practical for me to mm. do that, right? So if I see a survey or feedback comes through to me, it says our team feels like they're not getting enough feedback. My first gut reaction is like, well, let's just build an all company feedback process. But like that's might not solve the problem, right? Mm. So. When I brought that challenge to my team and said, someone's mentioned that they're, they're feeling like there's not enough feedback in the company. Like, what do you, what does everyone think? Maybe we should build some kind of feedback like tool. Jesse and my team was like, well, actually, often in engineering, you find that the, the real kind of core of feedback problems come from PRs mm-hmm. because people don't have time to review PRs properly. And what ends up happening is you get a bunch of engineering engineers just putting thumbs up or thumbs down or a sad face and nothing else on the feedback. <laughs> and then people have this reaction of like, feedback sucks. Yeah. Or they're like, the relationship I have with this person is like uh, kind of getting worse because the feedback relationship isn't good. Mm. So she was like, actually, if I was going to build something, what I would build is a little Chrome integration that kind of copies and pastes templates for feedback so you can actually give people useful feedback on PRs. Mm. And I was like... That's so much better of a solution than some dumb all-company feedback tool. And that's the kind of stuff that my team is doing. Do you find that this is something that is a broader trend across... Is there a movement across people teams in general to... I mean, what it feels like what you're describing is like you're effectively researching and then designing products appropriate for individual teams rather than blanket rolling out SaaS effectively or, or things that you can buy. And I, I wonder if, you know, in many of my conversations with HR folks and people folks that are interested in progression, for example, there's a tension between something that will work for everyone, one and done it. And mm. um, and then there's also definitely influence over what I've read is best practice. And I should just use this because that's best practice on one side. And then mm. the cost and the effort to work out or to give responsibility to I don't know, a leader of a team or, or to hire someone who can go and do that on the other side. It sounds like what you just described is the latter, but is that, do you think that that's something that lots of people are doing or? 
I think there is a, a kind of general trend. I don't think people are calling it like people ops as a product or anything like that. I think that's fairly not novel, but like I, I, I don't think many people are using those kinds of words. But I do think there's a trend to build stuff that people like to use internally mm. rather than just building stuff for bureaucracy, bureaucratic reasons. I guess the, I think, the, I think maybe the, the trend is better described as like being more commercial as a people operations team. Mm-hmm. So building stuff that actually has some kind of return of investment rather than just doing things because it, it feels like the right thing to do. It's nice optics. Mm-hmm. So I think that that definitely exists. And I think that's coming from the, you know, just things like getting people ops at HR, having a kind of a greater seat at executive tables. I think that's had a really big impact, positive impact. That's been a kind of slow burning thing. I think better HR analytics mm-hmm. and better HR data and tools and those kinds of things have really helped this as well. And I also think people have actually just started having kind of better quality expectations of their people operations teams. Mm. Teams have started saying like, no, I, you know, I don't want to do that bad thing. I want to do this good thing. Or like, I'd prefer if it was this way. Yeah. Um, and I think that's been really positive as well. But I think it's also like, it's not, it, I think it's not always making something bespoke or making something blanket it's kind of knowing when one or the other is the most appropriate path to take yeah yeah so it's a it's a deeper research process and and doing five whys and things rather than any one direction or another yeah and it comes back to that like comes back to that thing of like a lot of people operations teams are built with people that don't fundamentally understand how the teams that they're working with work Mm. Like they don't understand, like they understand how they as human beings interact with each other, Mm. but they don't understand what it actually feels like to be an engineer in the team. Yeah. Whereas one of the things about my team that I think is the the kind of differentiator is like, Jesse knows exactly how it feels to be a person that's spending all day coding at a a company and what that actually means for you um, in a way that's able to give better quality feedback to me and the rest of the people team. Yeah. And that pull request insight is such a truism that i've seen i mean i'm not even an engineer but i've i've seen that in almost every company i've worked at and remote probably gets even worse and is just one of those things that would be missed or not solved if you didn't kind of see it so i would never have thought of that right like i didn't even know that was a thing i didn't even know what a pull request meant until i (laughs) my my, my fiance is an engineer and he's like laughing at me because i'm don't know what i'm talking about but like yeah. Yeah, I would I would never have thought of that, right? I don't I honestly don't think I have ever had anyone in my people operations team that would ever th- think of that except for, you know, this the setup we've got now. Yeah. Hire people that have the specialisms that you don't and like go and let them do their jobs. It's the, the classic. Um... Yeah, exactly. I think also the other thing as well is like the the teams themselves haven't you know, like when you ask the engineering team themselves about feedback and say, how can I help you? They also don't think of the pull request thing because they see people operations and they're like, what do people people usually right, do? Right. Or they usually just implement like a, some kind of company tool. So they actually say to you like a company feedback tool, but that's actually not what they want either. Right. So I think it's a really interesting, it comes back to that silly quote that I hate, which is like, if you would have asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses kind of thing. Right, but, yeah. right exactly. Yeah, it does make me think that, you know, every every company should hire a researcher just to research the staff. You know, you'd find out yes. all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, in a non-creepy way. <laughs> um, no, I think it would be really interesting. One of the jobs in my team that we actually are looking at hiring this year is a user research, like an internal user researcher that just just does yeah. goes through our data and our surveys and speaks to people and you know does one to ones and yeah. pra- like does testing on our tools that we're launching and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, well, if you do that, I'd love to hear more. It sounds fascinating. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into the, I suppose the particular part of your role 
that we're particularly interested in at progression and trying to, I suppose, rethink. I'd love to hear your thoughts, unvarnished, about the role of progression frameworks and I suppose what you understand them to be first, but then like how you've seen them implemented well, if at all, badly, you know, the the pitfalls, how you would go about it or not. Mm. So we have just finished launching our progression framework at Whereby weeks ago, maybe three, two weeks ago. And I've probably made about four or five progression frameworks for different companies in my time. And I think my like, my fundamental issue with them, well, there's a couple couple of like kind of original sins of progression frameworks, <laughs> which is like, the first one is, I find that, you know, I really strongly believe in building non-parental relationships with your team members. I really dislike when you work for a company and there's this kind of weird, like infant infantilizing kind of vibe that you get where the company kind of tells you like, well, now you're ready for your the put on your big boy pants and you can go up to your level two B kind of thing. Like that's just super strange. Like you're talking to a grown adult who like is going to get a mortgage, they have children, and then there's somehow in in their working relationship they have this very weird parental I don't know, I just I really hate that. So I think I sometimes I've seen progression frameworks kind of lean too far into that strange parentalism where people kind of use the progression guide guide almost like training wheels like they mm. you know this is the way that I, I get my promotion it's like well I don't know if that's that's what you they really should be there for mm. I think that's, that's the kind of first problem I have with them they, they tend to lean too far in that direction and you're telling grown adults like to get your promotion you need to send you know make sure you send your weekly update emails and it's like oh right. what is this it's just kind of yuck but then the other direction I see them going in as well is like I sometimes feel like they're just an exercise in personal vanity for the people operations teams. They're this big piece of work that everyone pats themselves in the back that they all have made. And you ask people like, how often do you look at this? And people are literally like, maybe once every year for 15 minutes. And you're like, great. So we spent six months building this big thing that now every year we need to go in and relook at as a whole executive team all together. And all the feedback said we desperately needed it. And then when people actually got it, it was completely useless for 97, 99.99% of the year. People didn't even look at it. There's something really strange about that. I just don't, I don't know if the input of the way that they're currently set up necessarily matches the output. Mm. So one of the things I kind of struggle with is function specific and actually really role specific progression frameworks. Mm. I really, and I said, I'm a massive hypocrite because we have these at Webby, <laughs> right? This is, but this is also like, this is what the team really said they wanted. And I've kind of worked with that team to pare ours down as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So there's, it gets, it's almost as generic as we could possibly have it be. But there's a couple of little things in there that are function specific that we've just elected to make, uh, to differentiate. But I really do believe that like a, a really good progression framework should be something generic that's very associated with levels across your entire company mm. that says like if we're seeing you at this most junior level which we call inaugurate then really what we're expecting from you at this point is like a couple of key areas like what are your expectations around culture building what are your expectations around budgets and planning what are your expectations around the work you do in the building every day and not like granular things mm. like update the uh, segment tool but things like <laughs> making sure your reporting is accurate. Yeah. 
Like we expect everyone to make sure their reporting is accurate. That's a base level. And then if you get to level two, we expect you to not only have your accurate reporting, but also to be able to spot errors in others. Like that's the kind of things that I think is fair. And I, I really do believe in a generic framework across an entire company. Mm. I think that's really beneficial because it doesn't lean on being parental where you're giving everyone like microscopic details about little boxes they can tick to get a, their promotions. But it is a really, I actually find that very empowering. Mm. It's like, okay, so I kind of, as an adult, I know that these are the things that I need to be doing at various levels. And I can confidently say, well, I'm not budgeting, am I, for a team of 15 people. So then I'm clearly not a director. Mm. That makes sense. And it doesn't feel like as much of a vanity exercise because something like that, that the whole company can be looking at, even if they're only looking at it for 15 minutes of the year, that actually feels like a good investment. Yeah. I have all sorts of thoughts. Obviously, I've been thinking about this for a long time. <laughs> I know. The vanity <laughs> exercise bit, I found myself nodding vigorously. Yeah. And I do think that, yeah, it becomes the kind of big quarterly goal and maybe loses sight of why it's a goal in the first place and just becomes, I complete it for the sake of completing it because I said I would. And we have to get through all of these, every cell in every box and get it all done and by mm. the end you're like I mean I can't imagine it's particularly fun to be writing by the end but you're like cranking through it because you said you'd do it mm. and I do think that there is a real uh, yeah there's a real challenge there because by the time it rolls out then even the person that wrote it's kind of sick of it yeah it also feels like it's something kind of out of arm's length about it too like the more verbose you make it and kind of granular actually the less likely someone probably is going to be to interact with it like if you see like a 25 page document about the job that you're supposed to be doing i think a lot of people would be like oh god mm. close the laptop yeah it's not or they skim it right i don't know yeah maybe i'm being too cynical no no i think what you just said is very true we over the last 18 months, we've kind of been iterating on what we think a good progression framework looks like. Mm. And it's got smaller and smaller, for sure, on a per role level. And now we kind of recommend like, you know, under 10 kind of line items in a, in a role, if you like. Yeah. And previously, we might have said double that or, or something. And there's just like mm. a cost. There's a cost. And there's the smaller and pithy you make something, the easier it is to remember. Mm. But I think the other thing that you you talked about, and this is, you know, not to try and pitch you or defend anything in particular, but the other problem is like how it's delivered is ultimately pretty underwhelming in terms of like, mm. I have to find a link to a Google sheet or it's somewhere in the company intranet or everyone's yeah. made a different copy. So I'm not entirely sure wh which one's the right one or all of this kind of stuff. Also just makes it feel slightly lackluster especially when alongside that you've got all these shiny sas tools that do cool stuff and send you emails and things like that and, and you've got this <laughs> send cool stuff like send you emails yeah, I know. wow well, modern modern technology <laughs> yeah interesting so then the process of something that you look at once a year or, or before every performance review or, or whenever the kind of mm. moment is how have you kind of wrapped process around that or instructions around that to tell people how to use it are there kind of moments in time in which you say you should go and look at this have you devolved any of that responsibility down to teams to kind of do it themselves or any of that i could talk about the ones i've built before right and i think what i've i think this is interesting so i think different companies should do different things for this i think it really depends on the kind of org you're building if you've got a company which is largely focused on kind of like quite junior people and there are a lot of startups in London actually that meet this criteria, right? That they're in, most of their hiring strategies are based around potential. They hire 
quite junior people, quite cheap salaries. And then the trade-off there is that you really need to invest in making sure that these people have good experience with progression. Yeah. I would say if you're in that kind of state, and I've built progression frameworks in that kind of business before, you need to build something that is largely the manager driving those progression conversations and reminding a person to review this framework because mm. junior people haven't got the history of knowing exactly what they're supposed to be doing and how these conversations are meant to happen. But very often that's where you start seeing kind of diversity gaps start appearing because the more confident and privileged uh, mm. that someone is, the more likely they're going to drive a conversation. And statistically, women and people of color are less likely to do that, right? So yeah. that's where you start seeing these, these trends emerge. However, if you're a company like Whereby, where we don't have a very large population of junior team members, we actually focus extremely, we have a very strong focus on senior people. Mm. I actually say you should have a much more balanced relationship where the expectation is actually you as an individual should be raising progression to your manager just as frequently as your manager is raising it to you. Right. Uh, when we launched our progression framework, it wasn't that the, the manager doesn't reach out to you and book a one-to-one to you. You mm. yourself go and do a self-reflection. Here's a template. We're happy to provide a template. If you don't want to do our template, then that's fine. Do whatever yeah. one you want to do. But you need to do some kind of self-reflection. And then you need to go to your manager and say, this is what I think this means then. And then the manager can give you feedback on that. But that's because we're hiring people with mostly senior in their title. Yeah. So that, that to me, feels like the more appropriate balance. It's less infantizing. Yeah. Um, but it feels more appropriate. Yeah, it feels like what you were describing before about infantilizing and being kind of super like patriarchal or, or here's how we do it here. And, and to a senior member of staff, it would feel incredibly patronizing. But actually, when yeah. you're a junior, frankly, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Um, it's yeah. quite comforting. And I don't know what I'm doing. And I'd love someone to just like <laughs> tell me we have a meeting every week. And that's. Yeah. And I know that if I go to that meeting, then. Or, or, or whatever the, the equivalent is. That's where you raise this conversation. Yeah, yeah the, exactly. The expectations are much, much better. But I've also seen like, I think there's like a, there's, a, there's a personality element to this, I think as well, because like I'm the kind of person that I don't really have a problem just doing something if I really want to, like just going for the thing that I really mm. want to do. I personally don't need a structure to tell me that I need to do X, Y, and Z to become a VP. I'm like, I just want to be a VP. So I'm going to start acting like I want yeah. to, like, I'm just going to do yeah. the thing, right? I'm going to go talk at the panel. I don't care if I'm still yeah. only a lead, right? But I, I, I do recognize that some people don't have that mm-hmm. same internal drive. I don't really know what it, what it is, but some people don't have the same thing where they actually do really appreciate someone actually saying, you know, it's fine for you to have these expectations mm. for yourself or like it actually is a good thing for you to have these expectations for yourself. So I think that that, that needs to be taken on board because even if you are really senior, like there's still some people out there that, you know, I've worked with even founders before that like founded the company uh, to kind of the CEO of the entire company. They're like, oh, do you think I'm actually allowed to challenge that with the board? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> what? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, I can say as a CEO of a company that the imposter syndrome is still real. You know, I, yes. as a team, we've been talking a lot about imposter syndrome actually and, and you know, the you can be quiet and confident you can be loud and and have crippling imposter syndrome as well so it's not just about like extrovert introvert split but there's probably a correlation somewhere i ended up watching a ted talk a couple of days ago with the ceo of atlassian who said that he has you know still has lots of 15 years in and with uh, tens of thousands of people on his team and hundreds of millions in revenue he still feels like an imposter i wonder if there's you know there's people who just need to hear that, really, that 
happens to everyone. Everyone feels like they don't know what they're doing sometimes. Mm. But then it also kind of makes, it's made me think that it's harder to spot, that it's not always obvious who the person who isn't confident advocating for themselves is mm. in a room. So anyway, like that's that's been a, a gnarly thing for us to pull apart as a team. And how do you make sure that it's just it's not just the people that are comfortable going and asking for the thing they want that end up getting the thing they want? Yeah, which I think is why we try to put our focus on the balance of like, I, I don't think it's ever going to be fair and equitable for you to expect that the 100% of the employee is the one that drives these conversations, right? Like I just, I, mm. the power structures that exist in a company will just never allow that to happen. No, no matter how transparent you make things, no matter how kind of forward you are with how your compensation structure works, no matter how forward you are with your progression framework, it will never be fair and equitable to say you as an employee are the one that 100% has the power to make this happen. I just don't think that that would ever work. And maybe that's a controversial opinion, I'm not sure. But I do think that a reality exists in which you say, we will do, you know, we'll do our, do our due diligence where twice a year we will raise this conversation. But if you want to mm. raise the conversation at any other point in the year, you do have the power to do that. And mm. that's kind of the future we're trying to build it whereby where we do say like, we will pencil in two times a year where we'll talk to you about progression and promotion or one time a year, but then every other month, if you wanted to bring us a conversation about progression or promotion, you are more than welcome to bring that up and here's how you, you can do that. Yeah, it's like the minimum holiday rather than the unlimited holiday. Or maybe that's a conversation that we leave closed for uh, this. The, the, it's, I don't think this is like, yeah, I, I, think it, I think it is that as well. Like It's like, we'll give you some stuff and you know that that's in the bag. So at least there's, you know, there's some yeah. there's some structure around this that we're putting in place. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you can't also take initiative and go and, and do your own thing or, or Yeah, that's true. That's actually kind of the it's funny, that's that's a approach I've taken quite a lot. I need to unpack that because that's the same way we've built our compensation structure. I didn't really think about this before, but like we've also built our comp around hurdles where if you've we don't have a a, a top cap, we only have a bottom. And we don't negotiate. That's yeah. one thing that we don't do. So we, we don't just like upwards forever. But Yep. If someone does have very specific skills, we will pay you way, way more than what we put on the budget, right? That's totally fine. Right. And then we also have the thing about unlimited holiday. You get the minimum holiday, but then if you want more than that, you just to get it and you can get it approved. We've got the same thing with progression. Maybe there's something I need to think about there. I don't know if that's always the right approach or I've just naturally fallen into that or if that's a deliberate choice. Mm. Our mutual friend, Ben from Charlie legend. has written a bunch, legend, uh, a bunch about this kind of stuff as well and, and how to structure holiday policy specifically, but... He's also written about progression frameworks. Or, mm, or yeah, Charlie has. famously, everyone loves that pod, that that um, blog, don't they? Yeah, but it is interesting to think about what the balance is between being overly. I completely understand your point around if you give people so much structure and kind of what you would say molly coddle them, it doesn't actually even build confidence necessarily. It builds dependency, mm. and actually, what you want to do is build confidence. Uh, but yeah. then giving, making it a complete free-for-all kind of whoever shouts loudest is obviously clearly there's problems with that as well. So finding where the, the flex is in between. Yeah. So I think one of the things that kind of comes out of progression frameworks that sometimes I really dislike is like if something is so specific, if progression frameworks are written in a really specific way and they're like, you know, role specific and extremely detailed and these are the different levels, then people that are a little bit maybe less confident do really lean on that and then start being like, well, I've ticked all these boxes, at least I think I have. And why isn't this, oh, it's because then there's like mm. someone like ephemeral 
there's a, there's a question around your communication or there's a question around your ability to like right. make decisions. And it's like, well, what does that mean? Yeah. How do I solve Something that? that mysteriously wasn't on the framework. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's also really, because that, that kind of further compounds the issue of people that don't have this natural kind of drive to just make things happen. They need that framework, but then you build something so specific that that framework then becomes a crutch. I just feel like they, they yeah. have the potential to be one of those things that can be super disempowering for some people and sometimes mm-hmm. even disempowering in a way that people feel like they're empowering but actually when you really ask questions they're like they wish the progression framework didn't exist almost <laughs> just a couple of the uh, challenges that that we have ahead of us at, at progression <laughs> but our, t- you know, our team actually did look at your the tool when we were implementing ours and th- they thought it was really really cool and like they actually feel like that would solve a lot of the problems i, I think there's a place and they, they should exist right like i think they're needed and necessary yeah. So I'm definitely not saying like, let's just completely scrap them completely. Like, Well, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? That there's something there because you've built five of them. Yes. That despite being, you know, there are, there's so many sharks in the water, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. I don't know if that's a saying. Yeah, I think so. You know, there's so many things that you can kind of go amiss or you can maybe amplify things that you should be mm. not amplifying with it. But there is clearly something there that means... Uh, it's kind of worth spending time on and people do spend a huge amount of time on them anyway so uh, i think we should wrap up but where can we find you online you're definitely a required follow on twitter i'll put your details all in the show notes as well yeah where can we find you so i'm hi jesse may on twitter although i will advise you i'm finishing my dissertation at the moment so it's largely just complaining about that so if you want actually good content then follow from the 28th of may afterwards like don't between now and 28th of may it's a you should definitely mute me and then unmute me on the 28th of may and otherwise i actually really love a lot of people reach out to me on linkedin and send me their thoughts and messages so also do that i love hearing from everybody that wants to argue with me about various things yeah, Jesse is a great person to argue <laughs> with. Genuinely. It's good. We. I don't think we disagreed on anything, though. I was quietly dis... No, I wasn't. Everything you were saying, I completely hear. I think that we probably fall... It's a very diplomatic way of saying you disagree on some things. We probably fall on slightly different bits of the spectrum. As in, I, don't, I probably mm. don't feel as extremely as you do about the structure being bad, because I think when I think about making things fair, I think about democratizing information yeah and if the alternative to having a progression framework that's maybe a little bit too granular and maybe a little bit unwieldy is to not have anything at all then it really just is the people that kind of go to the pub with the manager or or, you know know how to play the game that end up doing best but i think within building your progression framework or building your ability for people to grow it's very easy to then go too far and i think that there's some well-known companies in london that it feels like there's quite a strong culture of being overly maternalistic or infantilizing. Yeah. yeah. Which is definitely also healthy to avoid because you kind of then end up with people relying on that and asking why it's no longer there if you decide to remove it and, and all of that kind of stuff, which is not good either. Yeah. So that was a yeah. very long way of saying I didn't entirely agree with you, but I was. No, I feel that. I feel like we, we yeah. mostly agree. I'm, I'm going to yeah. bank that one as being we're, we're on the bank same it. page. <laughs> okay, bank nice. It. Well, thanks for having me. Jesse. thank you so much. And enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye.